Yes, welcome everyone. We are in the post-human era. What does this mean? What does it mean to be post-human? We are going to explore this fascinating, inspiring and exciting notion in our podcast, Post-Humans. Plural because we are going to interview scientists, artists, philosophers, scholars, and everyone who is engaging with this notion and who is helping us to understand more thoroughly and more deeply what does it mean to be post-human in the 21st century. So please be ready for a fascinating journey into the post-human. So dear posthumans, I'm very, very excited today to be with one of the leading voices of the emerging field of radical life extension. We're talking about Aubrey de Grey. We are based here at the Festival in Vision, Princeton University, uh, and we are thinking about the future of uh, the planet, the future of humankind. So I have again the, the delight to, and the honor to uh, host uh, um, Aubrey for this uh, interview in which we're going to talk about not only radical life extension, but actually the death of death or the death of aging. Thank you so much, Aubrey, for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me. So, Aubrey, I do have a bunch of questions, and I think I would start with the most simple one is, how did this interest start? Like, why did you start to get interested in kind of ending aging? I became interested in working in this area when I discovered that hardly anybody else was. Mm. This was a massive surprise to me. I had gone through my whole life knowing that aging is the world's most important problem in the sense that it is the thing that causes the greatest amount of suffering and that we needed to fix that. It was something that we could in principle fix uh, with better medicine and thereby keep people healthy when they get older. And um, I had totally assumed that everybody else thought the same. It was only in my mid-20s, late-20s, that I began to find out that that wasn't true. And so I switched fields. In this case, I also would like to ask you, you define yourself as a biogerontologist. Is, is that right? Could you define that for the people who are not uh, in the field? Right. So um, the field of gerontology is really a lot of different fields. Mm. So there are people who call themselves clinical gerontologists or geriatricians. These are people who are really doctors who specialize in the elderly. Then there are social gerontologists who work on, like, you know, making people's lives more dignified, things like that. Then there are biogerontologists who work on trying to understand the phenomenon of aging. I actually call myself a biomedical gerontologist, which means I somehow, I sit somehow, somewhere between biogerontologists and clinical gerontologists. I'm interested in developing new medicines that don't yet exist and that will work better than the ones that do today. That's a great. Let's talk about it because I do have a, a bunch of philosophical questions that I would like to discuss, discuss with you. But first, I would like to ask you what is, and again, I would also like to mention that uh, Aubrey wrote a wonderful book on this topic, 2007, titled Ending Aging, the Rejuvenation Breakthrough that could reverse human aging in our lifetime. So, Aubrey, as an expert in the field, can you tell us about what is a concrete, realistic anti-aging plan? Well, in order to tell you what the anti-aging plan is, I first of all have to tell you what aging is, mm -hmm. which is a crazy thing, really. You would think that by now civilization would have come to an agreed definition of aging. But no, if you ask 10 people what aging is, you get a wide variety of different answers. Uh, 
the reason there's a confusion is because some people like to say that ageing is the decline in health that we see late in life. And some people say, no, 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 ageing is the stuff that happens earlier that eventually causes the decline in health, the diseases of old age. I don't think either of those two definitions is very helpful. I think it's best to say that ageing is the combination of those two things the lifelong process whereby the body damages itself as a side effect of its normal operation, and also the late-life process where that damage eventually exceeds the amount that the body is set up to tolerate, and therefore we see the um, decline in physical and mental function that it happens in late life. All right, so that's what ageing is. So then, yes, what's the plan? Well, this definition is quite useful in delineating what the alternative plans might be. Because if we've got these two component processes, and if the goal is to keep people healthy late in life, then what that really means is it's, uh, we're trying to separate our metabolism, the network of processes that keeps us alive from one day to the next, starting even before we're born, from the pathologies of late life. And we can see that there are two obvious ways to do that. Either we could separate metabolism from damage. In other words, we could somehow make the body run more cleanly so that it doesn't get to this point of having so much damage that we get sick. Or we could separate damage from pathology. We could somehow cause the body to stay working well even though it's accumulating all this damage. It turns out that both of those approaches are completely impractical. They're just not going to work. And people had pretty much established this by the time, way before I actually arrived on the scene. Even in the 1970s, people had given up, more or less. What I did was I pointed out that there's a third approach to a way of separating metabolism from pathologies of late life, and that is to repair the damage every so often. This doesn't actually intervene in either of the two component processes that I'm talking about. It just separates those processes from each other. And it turns out that this is far, far more practical. And we're making great progress in actually implementing it. Fantastic. Uh, and I will have more uh, scientific questions, but again, I want to kind of merge. Uh, and your discourse is also very philosophical. You're really tapping into some big questions about being human. So in this sense, I, I, I thought it was very interesting, your point in your book, in which you actually talk about the fact that the narrative on death has changed. And this is, I'm quoting you, you say natural causes was the accepted term for the cause of death when it occurred at an advanced age and in the absence of clearly defined pathology. These days, however, that's considered inadequately informative. So again, it's interesting how everything is shaped by a narrative, by a social and cultural understanding. So first question would be, how do you see the uh, narrative on aging and death uh, change or maybe not changing in, within the history of humankind and where we are now? And then, of course, I have some more questions about where should we go with it? So, first of all, I don't think the narrative of, about, around death has changed anytime recently. But the narrative of causes of death has changed. So the example that you just mentioned, where we've essentially abandoned this term natural causes, you know, that's progress. But unfortunately, we've still got a long way to go. At the moment, we have this crazy situation where when people die late in life, we try to assign some so-called disease of aging to them. Things like Alzheimer's or almost all cancers or osteoporosis or atherosclerosis. And in fact, these are just aspects of aging. 
So aging is not one thing. It's a network of um, inter interconnected things. But still, you know, calling some of it disease and some of it not is really unhelpful. It really you know, messes up our attempts to figure out what to do about it. And I think as time goes on and we appreciate that more, we're going to, well, we, I'm already seeing, in fact, we are getting much more appreciation that this damage repair approach that I pioneered nearly 20 years ago is actually the sensible way to go. It's now become a very mainstream, orthodox um, way of thinking. Thank you so much. And I would like to go on a little bit on this topic because there is, for instance, the idea of classifying age as a disease. Some people claim that that would be good maybe to get more research funding. But I, I'm concerned that thinking of age as a disease would uh, exacerbate the problem of ageism, that is the discrimination based on age. So what do you think about, and I was also thinking of maybe, maybe other ways to go about it, and I thought, I thought maybe aging seen as an option, not a consequence of living. But again, I think that going in the, in, in the approach of thinking of, of age as a disease, I think is very problematic. So I just wanted to see what you think. Right, so first of all, I think the word disease is dangerous because it has too many connotations of being similar to an infection, for example. But saying that aging is a medical problem is what I say. Now, I think your concern still applies, right? Even though I'm not using the word disease. But then, hang on. If we say, well, calling aging a medical problem, you know, medicalizing aging somehow diminishes the dignity of the elderly, you know, hang on. Uh, if a young person has a disease and we don't call it a disease, does that, is that good? It's crazy. We, if we can actually improve somebody's quality of life with medicine, then we should be doing so, whether they were born recently or whether they were born a long time ago. If we need to do that, then we need to say that we need to do it. And therefore, we need to acknowledge that the problems that these people have, the fact that there are things they can't do that they could do 50 years ago, that's a medical problem. Denying that it's a medical problem in order to preserve the dignity of the elderly is just complete nonsense. And on this, I would like to ask you another question, which is, of course, is more speculative. But if we get rid of the consequences of aging, and if we do not get rid of death, because, again, these are two different things. If we get rid, for instance, of the fact that we're going to be aging, so there is only another option today, which is violent death. Maybe, you know, falling from a building or a car, if there are still going to be cars in the future, or whatever is, is we can think of. But it's going to be a violent death. It's not going to be a, between the common natural death. So I'm thinking, and I'm not going to go to the spiritual side of it, but even from a physical perspective, is that going to be even more traumatic to die when the body is not, doesn't have the, the stage to get ready for death? I think that a large part of why we feel bad about people dying at an early age is because we feel that it's premature. And if we have eliminated the health problems of late life so that people can live indefinitely long if they don't get a violent death, then all deaths will be premature. And I think that's fine. It, it, you know, it, it, it makes sense to me that we try our best to minimize deaths from car accidents or asteroid impacts or whatever it might be. And I think that it makes absolute sense that we should be doing that for people who were born a long time ago, same as for people who were born recently. And on this, I would like to push it a little bit to 
I wouldn't say the metaphysical level, but the physical level on different planes of an existence. So if we think of energy, energy doesn't die, can only transform itself. Now, if the body is energy, after death, it's still going to be transforming itself. So what I'm trying to say here is that, for instance, from a Buddhist perspe perspective, they say, well, if you have cancer, it's actually on some level a good thing for you because you have the time to get ready for death. If you have a, a violent death on the other side, you're going to be completely unprepared for, again, different stages of existence, which doesn't have to think of religion or, or paradise or anything. But again, think of existence from a physical perspective as energy. For instance, in my case, I would rather have an idea when I'm going to die, then maybe get rid of death, but eventually dying out of an unexpected reason. You know, again, I'm pushing it a little bit, but what do you think of, of this idea of like getting not prepared for dying? I think it's complete nonsense. Mm -hmm. I think that we are certain to continue to work to reduce the risks of death from any cause, uh, violent death, you know, pandemics, whatever, and that makes sense for exactly the reason you say, deaths, you know, sudden deaths are not a good thing. But um, who are they not a good thing for? I mean, when you're dead, you're not, you don't know about it. So maybe it's just that they're bad for the loved ones of, the, um, of, of these people. But then having their loved ones gradually declining and suffering so much because of the gradual death of aging is also pretty miserable for the loved ones, right? So I don't really see that this is an argument at all. All right, and let me, let me ask you another question because, for instance, uh, I know that in the transhumanist field, the term immortality used to be used and then the field got a lot of criticism. So a lot of people now, out of uh, the idea of uh, Natasha Vidamore, they use radical life extension. They don't use immortality anymore. But I think you still use the notion of immortality. I don't use either of these things, okay. no. Okay. I don't talk about longevity at all, let alone immortality. I don't think about longevity at all. I'm just doing medical research. I'm interested in keeping people healthy. Quite recently, somebody invented the term immorbidity, which is rather good because it specifically says never getting sick. Right? Never getting the chronic health problems that are currently typical of late life. That's really a great word to describe what I actually work on. I don't work on longevity, let alone immortality. Okay, so you are not, uh, let's say that the goal of your research is not, let's say, getting rid of death itself. Is that the that's goal? Right. The goal, my goal? The goal of my research is to get rid of sickness. Okay. And that's what, there will be this side effect of people living longer because, of course, most people die from being sick. Do you think, like another question that I have, if you look at the history of humankind from the beginning of civilization, humankind have been around for a much longer time, but for instance, if we look at the, some of the first narratives, you know, the epic, the epic of uh, Gilgamesh, and, uh, and we already have the search for immortality, what's going on that the humans are trying to kind of become, let's say, immortal, but they're not reaching that? Like, what, what do you... To me, it's very simple. We have understood since the beginning of civilization, that aging is absolutely terrifyingly hor hor horrible, right? It's the worst thing. And we have known that there's absolutely nothing we could do about it. So our only option was to put it out of our minds and get on with our miserably short lives and make the best of it, rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing that's going to happen to us in the distant future when we get old. Now. That makes perfect sense to me. Right up until now, like literally until I came along, um, because now we've got a plan. So we might actually be able to escape this. 
whereas until now, we had no plan. So all we had was fantasy. And of course, how we put it out of our minds is a psychological question. It's not a philosophical question. It's not a scientific question. It's just psychology. You know, we can make up all manner of ridiculous stories that imply that aging is some kind of blessing in disguise, and that's exactly what we've done. Some people would say that the whole of religion is part of this. You know, certainly the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, the myth of Tithonus, all of the absurdities that people cling to, deliberately misunderstanding the message that people like me come along with, you know, saying, oh, I wouldn't want to be old all that time, when in fact this is the exact opposite that we're doing. We're keeping people young for longer, right? You know, things like that. You know, and they just can see, carry on saying these things and letting the actual rebuttals go totally in one ear and out the other because they just don't want to get their hopes up. They're terrified of getting their hopes up. You know, but this is a bit of a personal question, so you don't have to answer. But, you know, when you said that aging is the most terrifying thing, I just was wondering how has been your experience of aging? Not because I think we're already aging when we're two years old. I mean, we're always aging. So in general, how has been your experience of aging? Yeah, of course, when I say aging is terrifying, what I mean is the second of my two processes that I define aging as. So the decline in health, the inexorable, progressive, slow, steady decline in health. And I've actually been lucky. Um in the sense that the, I, I have, my family all my life has only consisted of my mother. She died eight years ago, but she didn't suffer too badly, you know. Uh, so I've actually not had it too bad in terms of seeing people suffer the traumatic aspects of aging. But that doesn't make me any less concerned about it. How do you feel about fields like, for instance, cryonics? Are you in support of that? Or? Sure, cryonics is an extremely important biomedical research area. It, it's going to be able to save a huge number of, number of lives in the future. And I think it's a scandal that there is still so little money going into developing better cryopreservation techniques. From a scientific perspective, what has happened to that person consciousness or, or experience, phenomenological experience, in these, whatever, 100 years, 200 years of being cryonized? What is going to be that impact on their you know, like ex existential experience? I honestly have no idea. I mean, clearly, if we succeed in reviving somebody who was previously cryopreserved, that means that that person was alive all the time because the definition of the word death is that, you know, once you're dead, you stay dead. If you're alive now, then you've never been dead, right? Mm. So this is just a medical procedure. It's nothing to do with bringing people back from the dead. It just means that we may have to re, you know, to adjust our definition of clinical death in the same way that we already have done in the past, right? Um, but really, that's all. It's just a medical procedure. Okay, let me ask one more question, if it's possible. From a philosophical perspective, many transhumanists love to quote your work. Uh, but I know, with, for instance, with other thinkers, that, for instance, they themselves, they don't consider themselves transhumanists. I've been working you know, for many years now with Kevin Warwick. He, he doesn't really consider himself a transhumanist. Uh, records well, he doesn't really consider... Now, in your case, do you consider yourself a transhumanist or you like to collaborate with the transhumanist community but you don't not, do not consider yourself a transhumanist? Um, well, I want to answer that question in two ways. Um, I think that transhumanism is simply 
a, a kind of catch-all word for all of the areas of technological innovation and research that are leading to dramatically changed and improved aspects of the human condition and human experience. So in that sense, absolutely I'm a transhumanist in the sense that I think that, that it, it's very good that we are pursuing those technologies. However, the other sense in which one might call me a transhumanist is the actual the word, the label. And I actually don't like to be associated with that label because I think it actually it's counterproductive for all of these fields, but not only my own field of, of, of biomedical gerontology, because it makes it sound as though the goal is to create a kind of a new version of humanity, you know, a new species. Mm. Um, whereas, in fact... What, what drives me and what I think should um, attract other people is the continuity with the progress, the technological progress that has been made in the past. Um, you know, the fact that we've come so far with medicine over the past 200 years and people are living a lot longer as a result and having much higher quality lives. You know, really all we're doing is continuing that. And I think the word transhumanism somehow distracts people from uh, appreciating that fact. Thank you so much. And because, again, you're such a, a radical thinker, which I love, what is your vision of a society in which, for instance, ageing has been between the comma cured? I don't really have a vision of a post-ageing world. But the reason I don't is because we're not going to have a post-ageing world for another 20 years or more. And that is a long time in which a lot of other things are going to happen as well. You know, we're going to have much more automation, of course. We're going to have much more shift to renewable energy, artificial meats, things like that. You know, there's an awful lot of things that are going to be different. And therefore, society will be restructuring itself on many dimensions all at the same time. And I, you know, I'm not an economist. I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, all I do, I'm just a biologist. And when I talk to economists, I do that a lot, or other people in other specializations, all I'm trying to do is give them the information about what's likely to happen and how soon in terms of actual medicine so that they can run with that and apply their expertise to figuring out how to maximize the benefits for humanity. Abre, I would like to thank you so much for your kindness, for, for your vision, and also for your braveness. You are brave. You, you go in places that people don't dare to, and I love that. Thank you so much. And if uh, you're interested in Aubrey's work, it, he's all over the place. He's very, very well known. You can find his information online, and he also has a research center in California, Sense. So again, connect with Aubrey. Thank you so much for your work. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.